I was here a couple weeks ago, and we talked about parties. We talked about weeping and joy, and where they go together, and um, how to bring um, how weeping um, really comparison will steal your joy and turn it into weeping. And so, so what we talked about, and interestingly, as we're diving into Nehemiah, what I saw is more weeping and more joy. So we're right back there. If you have a pen, I'm going to keep talking and I'm trusting you're working out the sound. If you have a pen or paper, that would you might want to write down a few notes today. Or if you have your phone and you like to take notes in your phone, I have been praying that God would give you just a few short phrases that would be something that you would grab onto and turn over and keep thinking and keep praying with the Lord about. So, we've got Nehemiah chapter 1. And in chapter 1, between 1 and 2, you've got four months. Four months of time between the news and the action. And I want to talk about what happens in those four months. You know the story. You've read it this week. Nehemiah longs to know the good news that is happening in a far-off land to his people. And that's not what he receives. And so he responds with grief. And in that grief, he turns to prayer. But my question for you is, what are you longing for? You know, we've got this word restoration, right? What is it that you want to be restored in your life? Maybe built better, built brand new? What's something you would pray consistently about for four months or four years? Maybe even for decades. Is there a relationship that has tension or it's broken altogether? You worried about your kids or your grandkids, their success? Is it your relationship with God? You want rebuild? Is there a dream that's been so delayed that you're worried it's going to be denied? What do you long to see built in your life? And not just for you, because we see here that Nehemiah is longing for something for a people far away in a land far away. And yes, he's absolutely connected, but it's far away. Is there a brokenness in the world that you see? A brokenness in your community, in your church, that you long to see God make whole? Where are you feeling burdened? Something you pray about consistently over a period of time. For me, I'm, I'm praying for my kids. And I have been, of course, throughout their life praying. But the last several months leading up to the school year and even into it has been, Lord, give them good teachers. Please give them good teachers. I know the teachers are tired. Um, they've been through a lot the last couple of years, but my kids really need good teachers. 
And I've been praying over and over again, good teachers. And that area um, of kids and my own kids is also where God is kind of connecting me and burdening me to pray and engage in the community, too. It's, it's not so much for children, but it's for other mothers raising children. I recognize what's been given to me. I've got a spouse. I have family. We have a house. Um, and so we have some safety nets built in that I know other moms don't have. And yet they desperately want their kids to have all the same good things that I want. And so I'm naturally tugged and pulled um, to want to help and volunteer and give my money to organizations that are helping moms, whether it's feed their kids, house their kids, educate their kids. Um, I, that, that's, that's what God keeps pushing me into. So you see these things, but you've got them too. What are you longing for to see built in your life? And so we have Nehemiah longing for Jerusalem to be established, for the worship center, for the house, for the homes, for the city to be protected, all of that. He is longing. And what he does with his longing is he takes it to God in prayer. And that's the first thing we learned. When we get input from outside of us, that says something's not right, rather than immediately respond, which is my gut instinct. I'm a doer. I'm like, how can we fix this problem? What needs to happen? But rather than immediately respond, Nehemiah shows us a path that says pause and pray. And he's looking up. So instead of, oh, this information's not good. I've got to go fix it. No, this information's not good. God, what do you have? And so we pause and we pray. And I see the bookends of Nehemiah's prayer as both pressing immediately up into God. And then at the end, he's receiving, has received wisdom, and it presses him back out into solving the problems. Yes, prayer and action go together, but prayer comes first. Prayer is that first piece. And then prayer keeps happening over and over again in the action, right? But so he responds, so he starts with, I'm turning myself, my gaze towards God in this difficult time. And he ends with his request, God, will you grant me success with this plan that I've made? But what happens in the middle is really sacred space. That's where Nehemiah receives. He learns from the Lord. He gets insight and understanding the action steps that he's going to have towards the problem that he sees are all going to come in there. But these action steps don't come until prayer, until receiving, until sitting at the feet of the Father and going, what do you have? What do I need to know? What am I missing? Give me your eyes, Lord, for this problem. And so it's in that in-between that we get our posture right with the Lord. And we need the right posture in order to have the right action steps. Now, before we go any farther into that posture, I, I love the words at the end. I was a cupbearer to the king. And I want you to think about, this is really him saying his circle of influence. 
And, and what's your circle of influence? Cupbearer does not sound very important. Um, it's a hospitality role, and it's oftentimes dismissed those hospitality roles, right? We women know that. <laughs> um, he's cupbearer to the king. Who are you? Are you wife, mom, sister, daughter to your family member? Are you member of this church or another space? Are you a woman in your small group? Where do you volunteer? I'm a volunteer at such and such place. I'm a, I, I work here. I go, you know, where, what's your circle of influence? Because that's really important. Because I think what God does is he takes that longing that you start with and that circle of influence that's at the end of the chapter. And in that time of prayer, God puts those two things together. Helps us understand how those get woven together. For my own kids... When I'm praying, God, in the beginning of the summer, God, I really want them to have good teachers this year. I really want that. This is a, they've got to have better teachers this year. You know, that's really what I'm thinking. It's got to be better this year. Um, Lord, give that to me. Start a, some of what happened to me over the summer was God changed me. God, I, I kept feeling like God was asking me that question of why. Why do the kids need good teachers? Well, I want them to be successful in this big and scary world. Why? That's what I felt like I was saying. Why do they need to be successful? I'm really afraid. I'm afraid of this world, Lord. And what I want them to be like, I want them to have some armor. Why? And then I realized I'm not really trusting you, God, with my kids. So I'm somehow trying to be scrappy and figure out how to get them the armor that they're going to need. When actually God is like, I've got it. I'm going to give them the armor that they need. I need to trust God, who is ultimately their parent for all of time and eternity, that God has got them, right? That's the posture thing that God worked on me as I was still saying, I want them to have really great teachers, right? So at the end, I'm still going, what's my circle of influence? Well, actually, it's not the teachers. It's my kids. That's my circle. And that's what God revealed to me in, in how God worked in my prayer time about something I really longed for. And so I'm, I'm a mom to Zoe and Wilson. And God's helping me push them not into their studies, I'm just going to let, let, I'm actually letting it go and letting their dad do it. It's working a lot better. Um, (laughs) And letting me press them into the Lord, right? So that's what happened in me. And I think God will do the same thing in you. And and is already doing the same thing in you. And the things that you most long to see, when we go to God in prayer, he's going to change you and let you know your action steps. So, What do I see is what God does with Nehemiah. Man, you know he confesses. And I'm not going to let us get off the hook. Uh, I think it can be hard for your pastors to to, um, convict. And so since I'm the guest, I'm going to use that time (laughs) to help your pastors. Um, Because that's the posture change. 
That's the confessing piece that he does. And so I think what happened in Nehemiah is he, he's heard the stories of the first temple. He knows how amazing the party was. He knows about the prayers that were, were happening during that time. And he's longing to see the second temple rebuilt and restored. And so in Second Chronicles 6 which happens right before that party where they establish um, the first temple. Here's what Solomon prays in verse 36. You just listen along with me. He's, he's, he's forward thinking. When they, this is the people, sin against you, God, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them to captivity into a faraway land, does this sound, this is a story, right? It's, it's like Solomon's predicting what will happen. But then he says, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and they repent and plead with you and they say, we have sinned and we have done wrong and acted wickedly. If they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, then from heaven, you will hear them and you will forgive your people. I think that's going on in his brain. And I think he's here, he's here, they acted very wickedly. It's the same language. And I think he's thinking about this. And he's noticing, hey, we have sinned, we have messed up. And I make this point of the we... Because in American Christianity, we have really emphasized that personal relationship with Jesus, which is awesome. God wants you to know that you can individually connect with God. You don't need um, fancy pastors or priests or anything like that, that you have full access to the Father. The Spirit lives in you, will guide and comfort you. All of that is true. And also... We need the community. And also, the scripture gives us many examples in the Old Testament of leaders corporately confessing for what the whole group did. And there's something really powerful that happens when we do that because when we can take on what our circle of influence is doing, even if it's not our individual sin, but it's happening in our circle of influence, when we confess it before the Lord, we get to be part of the renewal plan for that, part of the redemption story. And so it's important. And then he says here, um, Nehemiah in verse 8, he says, remember the instructions of Moses. So I know he's going back to Deuteronomy and he's going back to chapter 4. And it says right here in verse 25, he's, it's right before they get the Ten Commandments. And it says, if you then, speaking to the people, become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, and arousing his anger, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations. And then it goes on, and it says, when you are in distress, and all these things have happened to you, then in the later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey for the Lord your God is a merciful God. And so he knows that they need to confess and return. And so I'm going to skip down through the Ten Commandments because we skip over those a lot. And I'm going to show you where I think they actually apply today. 
So, you shall have no other gods before me. But we do, we put in cheap substitutes, right? Whether we're, we're trying to fill the holes that were meant for God with either success or love or sex or money or power or, or, or. Now, the second one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath in the waters below, only God. But how many times do we make God actually really small and have God fit into our image? It's as if God is this giant, gorgeous mountain and we're this little tiny puddle in the path. And if we're still... We can reflect the mountain, right? But the point is the mountain. But sometimes we get to thinking and talking about God as if God looks like a little puddle reflecting the mountain. We cannot make God small into our image. We're in the image of God, but God is much, much bigger. More grander, more loving, more powerful than we could ever imagine. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But you know when you go out into the community and you are known as a Christ follower, your words and deeds reflect on the image of God. I mean, the most classic example is the car with the little sticker for their church and then they're driving super obnoxious and rude. But we kind of live that way sometimes, right? We wear our crosses. They better, our words and our deeds better reflect the man that died for us. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Man, that's a tough one for a pastor. How do I set up and honor um, God with the rhythms of my life? And how do we not get so scrappy and demanding that we're working every day because we need more than our fair portion? When do we trust God that we have what we need? Or don't? Honor your father and mother. Honor the fathers and mothers, the legacy that you've received, the inheritance that you've received, the authority that God has put over you. Yes, there is always a place for discernment that maybe you are under the wrong authority. But even in that... Sometimes people will burn bridges, practically try to burn the house down on their way out the door. That's not God-honoring. So as I'm listing, I've gone through five of the commandments, and I'm inviting you to think about them for yourself. But I'm also inviting you to think about them for your community, your circle of influence. You shall not murder We must honor life, all of life. God is the author and decider of the end of life. But also for us, are we destroying the image of God with our words or deeds, the way we talk about other people, the things we do towards other people? You shall not commit adultery. Do we honor God with the boundaries that we've set up? Do we steward our sexual life even? 
This is both um, what happens before marriage and keeping oneself pure in actions and in what we watch. Um, but it's, it's also when we're married. Sexuality is a gift God has given to us in marriage. And so how, are, how am I stewarding that? You shall not steal. Okay. If someone's got like a wallet and you see it drop, you're probably going to pick it up and hand it to them. But I do think we steal. We, we look for opportunities to take more than is our fair share. Um, I think actually this example doesn't work anymore because I think Netflix knows everyone is sharing their Netflix. Um, so now they've created a system that works for that. But for years it was not supposed to be like that, right? But we were all fine. Oh yeah, I'll use your code. I'll use your code. I'll use your password here to get the deal. That's actually stealing. When you're at work and you're being paid to do a job, everybody needs a break. I'm all about, I'm a boss. I'm all about the bonding and the, and the, that's really important, but there is a moment where it goes too far, right? And so you're actually stealing from the company by not doing the work that they're paying you to do. You shall not give false testimony. And we we got to be truth tellers, right? We have to honor God with our words. And we have to pay attention to where we're saying the truth. But we're absolutely deceiving manipulating, making them think it's a little different than it is. I've said the truth, but I'm not going to clarify when they get it wrong. And the last one, you shall not covet. So this was from the last time when I talked, right? When we compare, then we complain, right? Because we want what someone else has rather than saying, thank you, God, for what you've given me. It's enough. So think for a second, which, which one of these is the Lord want to talk to you about this week? For yourself? For your circle of influence? What's something, what's something you need to confess before God? And let God know you have a longing to really see that as whole. And I think God's going gonna, gonna to change your posture And then he's going to give you action steps. And those may be other people that can help you or in the church or in therapy. There are are resources. But starting with prayer, then the action steps will come. Now back to Nehemiah. I brought you there because that's what I thought Nehemiah would be thinking about. And that's why his posture changed. And then he was ready for his marching orders. But I don't want to, I don't think Nehemiah was stuck in the sadness of his sin. Because I think he knew about the truth of Nehemiah 8.10. You're not going to cover that in your study, so I'm taking the luxury to end with that because it's so good. It's such a popular verse. Um, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Where does that come from? So in in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra stands up on a high platform in front of all the Israelites and he opens up the law, the first five books, exactly what I was reading to you. He reads the story to them of how God rescued them. They worship God. He reads how um, they are to live and they are in utter grief. 
they realize how much they have fallen short. And then Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the Levites instruct the people, and this is what they say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now what they're saying here, this Hebrew word for strength, Elsewhere, it's translated refuge, and I think that's important. Um, it tells you what kind of strength we're talking about here. I'm saying, don't, I know that you know you, that you've really messed up, but don't be overly sad. Because actually, God longs to rescue you, protect you. Um, when it says the joy of the Lord is your strength, it goes both ways. Our joy in God, the Father, is absolutely what will give you the protection you need, the um, uh, preparing that you'll need to endure. All the strength that you need can come from taking great joy in God. But also, God takes such incredible great joy in rescuing us. In being that protection for us. So there's no weeping. There's no sadness. We own what we've messed up. And then we pivot back to God for our marching orders. And God longs to give them to us. And so I'll end this time with um, just a prayer of blessing for for you. I'm going to read from Nehemiah 3.17. Um, This is a contemporary prayer prophet for them. And these words are so true um, for them in the release from their sin so that they can move forward with God. And they are true for you as well. So receive this blessing. May May you know the Lord your God is with you. With you all the time. May you know this mighty warrior who saves you, who has longed to save you, who has planned it. May you know this God who takes great delight in you. And in love, this God who no longer rebukes you, but who takes great joy over you with singing. So enjoy your time with your um, friends, enjoy snacks, enjoy conversation. Um, Do not be shameful about the things that God has brought up. That is your renewal. That is your freedom and your beginning. Thank you.